You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Malcolm Ogborn joining us, and he'll be talking about physician leadership. Dr. Ogborn is a professional physician coach and leadership development consultant with a special focus in partnering with early career leaders and leaders working in remote and rural areas. He is also the vice chair of the Canadian Physician Coaches Network. He's worked for 38 years in leadership positions in clinical care, research, and academics. He coaches individual professionals and organizations in the areas of emotional intelligence, career development, conflict management, and leadership. And he just published a book called Sudden Leadership, A Survival Guide for Physicians, which I read. I think it's excellent, a very good resource for any physician aspiring to be a leader. And doing quite well on Amazon. I think it's within the top 10 in the physician tab. So why are we talking about physician leadership? And it's going back to some of the themes I explored with Dr. Garvey a couple of podcasts ago, is that our healthcare system is having trouble. It's been having trouble for a while, but it's it's the pandemic obviously made things worse. And if we look at the evidence, physician leadership, and again, this is evidence-based. We can maybe discuss this a bit later. Physician leadership leads to a better, healthier healthcare system, more resilient more forward thinking, but also leads to better patient outcomes. And yet, and we're talking about this just before the podcast began, formal training for leadership is lacking. It's better now. And I'm excited to hear that UBC just told me, Dr. Ogborn is thinking of a program. But when I was a young boy in residency and medical school, you really had to look for leadership training. It wasn't offered. So, Dr. Ogborn, can you tell me a bit about your own leadership journey and how you went into it, how you got into teaching, if you don't mind? Well, th- thanks, Dimitri, and thanks for having me. Uh, my own leadership journey started a very long time ago, I think, when I was uh, made the chief resident at uh, Princess Margaret Hospital for Children in Perth, Western Australia, uh, which was a two-year position then. And there was no training. And, in fact, I think like a lot of physicians, um, the, the training for leadership was really trying to find role models um, around you, um, which could be wonderful and it could be terrible because it really was dependent on, on the, the sorts of things you saw. And I think having had very little life experience of leadership in my early career, um, I approached leadership um, in the way that I think we approach everything in medicine from an academic specialty. You know, it's competitive. You know, it's important to be right. You know, the person who can forcefully push their arguments through is the person who's going to win. And I think that was a lot going back certainly into the the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That was a lot of the leadership style of medicine I was seeing. And I think it was really in the late 90s when I I actually finally started getting some training and signed up with the then the Physician Management Institute program. I mean, they now call them PLI through CMA, that I started to realize there was this whole world of actual science and research out there into leadership. But I mean, it wasn't in medicine. It was outside of medicine, and therefore it wasn't part of our world. And that there was actually a lot of evidence that um, what did work, what didn't work, what styles were appropriate. And uh, it really changed my viewpoint. And so I started getting interested in this. Excuse me. And um, I started applying it at the time I was 
quite involved in research leadership positions, and I was applying it working with research institutes, probably in a very stumbling way at first. And over the latter years of my career, as I rose into more senior leaderships, and I became responsible for you know, looking at other people who were coming into leadership, I was really struck by the fact that they were actually basically struggling with the same things I struggled with, making the same mistakes I made over and over again. And I, I think I became a little um, frustrated as to why medicine was was so caught in having to repeat this, this kind of painful history, you know, having these rites of passage where people, you know, sort of basically get thrown in at the deep end and have to figure it out from, for, for themselves. Um, in fact, at one stage, that was proposed as the cover of the book was a whole lot of people jumping off a plank and sort of sputtering the water which is why the book cover comes up with those little life boy things because that's what we were thinking of at the time when we were designing the cover so I, I got into coaching um I mean I think a lot of us um in medicine period I mean are involved in coaching and mentoring and again that's another area where we sort of do it whether we know how to or not you know the old see one do one teach one thing and as I, I found myself um, really providing information on the same concepts over and over and over and again. And, I mean, I had this library of articles and books and things like that, and I was emailing my, the people I was coaching all these little things to read, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have this in one place? So I started looking for a resource where all of it was in one place. I, just, I simply couldn't find it. And so... That's what started the book. I mean, it, it was going to start off as a sort of pocket guide on you know stuff that's useful to know as a leader, and it it sort of grew a bit from there in, into what now has been published. But I, I I still get that tremendous sense of you know people take on leadership roles and they know the issues they have to deal with, but that the, the the skills required to actually do that is completely divorced from their previous training and background. And so they're just left to sink or swim. And I think we should be able to do better than that. And, and I agree. And we were talking about uh, a couple of minutes before the podcast started that people don't realize that physicians will often be put into leadership positions whether they want it or not. Um, mm. that, that, that's why I like the title of, the, of, of your book, Sudden Leadership. Because, you know, sometimes you'll get a knock on the shoulder and somebody will ask you, can you help me with this? And then a couple of days later, you're, you're doing, you're deciding, you're dealing with staff conflicts, you're talking to health authorities, which is what happened to me. And I think I've told my colleagues and we're not prepared. And it's really interesting this, to, to see that a lot of medicine is based on, on evidence, but these soft skills like leadership or teaching, even though there's a lot of evidence, um, we don't necessarily use it in medicine. Uh, mm -hmm. We, I mean, it's better now. It seems like it's better now. But even teaching, there's ways to teach that are that are evidence based to work better, just like leadership mm -hmm. is. And in your book, you do have a lot of references. Mm -hmm. So, do you? How do you keep up with the literature? Is there? I'm assuming it's there's always things published, but how do you keep up with leadership literature? How do you keep that up? Um, I think there's a number of ways. I mean, one is, is, is it's really great being part of a coaching community um, because, you know, you essentially, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like living in a gigantic journal club. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Canadian Physician Coaches Network, we have, 
coaches, about two thirds of whom are like me. They're physicians who have gone on to get formal training qualifications coaches, but a third aren't. I mean, they are people who have come from other worlds, um, other life experiences. And, and the thing about coaches is that they, they often had a previous day job. I mean, and then they decided to get into coaching. So, I mean, it brings together a lot of backgrounds. So every time you meet or come, you know, everyone tells you, well, did you read this book or that book? You know, I mean, I think there's a thing that if there isn't a thing, there should be called something called book anxiety because, you know, <laughs> no matter how much you read, there's always something else that someone says you should have read. And so I think just that of actually, you know, hearing from other people things that are useful and that you could bring in. Um, the other thing actually is a bit more formal related to my um, previous research background is I, I actually run a range of standing Google Scholar searches. And so, I mean, every two or three days I'm getting, um, you know, lists of interesting sort of articles and papers on topics I'm interested in, which I can scan through and see if there's something worth digging further into. Um, so I find that a useful resource, sometimes a frustrating resource. I mean, one of, one of, the, one of the ones I, I do that on is burnout. And, um, you know, burn, the amount of stuff that's written about burnout um, is huge. The amount of that that is actually original um, thought looking at approaches to change it is tiny. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, you really feel like you're looking for a needle in a haystack. But other than that, I think one of the things that I found helpful was, I mean, I, I did spend, you know, 35 years in health research. And so just having those skills to sort of go in and search and and go beyond PubMed, I mean, you know, you, you suddenly discover that when you go to a university library, there are actually search tools and indices other than PubMed. Yes. <laughs> they have a lot they of exist. interesting information in them. And um, so I think basically it's it, but it comes down to curiosity. I, I think you know, that's the real asset. And in many ways, I think that's one of the assets that physicians bring to leadership. And, you know, a lot of what happens in coaching, I think, is encouraging physicians particularly in the leadership role, to, to take the curiosity that they use when they're facing a clinical conundrum and apply it to leadership uh, and not assume that it's some sort of standard process, that there may be interesting and novel ways of doing things. May I ask you, Malcolm, um, you're the vice chair of the Canadian Physician Coaches Network. How big is, is this network? How many members do you have? I think off the top of my head right now, we have about 60. Okay. So, you know, sort of... So, you know, I mean, that gives us a coach for roughly every 1,700 physicians in Canada. Close to the ratio in Quebec, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think we now have five Francophone uh, physicians. That's one of the areas, actually, that, you know, we'd like to develop more. I, I mean, there are other people coaching physicians who, you know, who aren't part of our network. But, uh, I mean, this was an idea I think a few of us were um, – tossing around, it would be nice to have some sort of network and association. And actually around the, the time that the pandemic was starting, Dr. Mamta Gowden in Ottawa um, really took the bull by the horns and, and demonstrated situational leadership in terms of pulling a, a core group of us together to really try and sort of create the community. And uh, I mean, my role in the community is, is a bit more administrative. I, I run the website and you know, sort of keep the directory information up to date and this sort of thing. But uh, it has generated a lot of interest, and within we're only two years old, and we're already now at the point of um, 
both working hard to promote um, access and availability to coaching. And, and next week, I'll be at the Canadian Conference for Physician Leadership, and we'll actually have a booth there as well as doing some workshops on how people can use coach-like approaches to improve connection and engagement. But we're now doing education um, sessions. I mean, we're not a formal coach coaching training organization, but we're actually formally through um, essentially webinars and through mentor sessions where we actually, coaches just sign in and basically can bring their issues and conundrums to a, in a safe place to a group of collective wisdom of coaches who work with physicians. And so um, I actually think that service that we've set up, as far as I can tell, is unique in the world right now. Uh, I mean, it's been very interesting that Mm -hmm. in the corporate world and in the life world and the spirituality world and all these things, coaching is huge. But even the International Coaching Federation, which is the largest international body that sort of Um, both promotes and establishes training and standards for coaches, they have communities of practice. They don't have a healthcare community of practice. Um, When you you consider that, I mean, just putting it in corporate terms, the size of the healthcare industry, um, that is, I I find it it very strange. So um, it's been a fun exercise um, and it's, you know, it's actually encouraging. I mean, you know, when you look at the caliber of people that we've, we've found who work in this space, um, I think the challenge we have, I mean, one of the things that the common motivations we had as a group is what we were finding when we were dealing with physicians and, and I think to a large extent with many healthcare organizations was they were thinking of coaching as a way of solving problems. Um, which isn't really what coaching is about. I mean, I mean, coaching really is about sort of inspiring people to actions that lead to good things or great things or exactly. excellent things. Exactly. Um, now, you might fix problems along the way, but, I mean, the focus of coaching is not this is bad, let's fix it, is what does good look like and how do we get there? And, and again, if you step out of sight of medicine and look into um, sociology and organizational research, this sort of strength-based approach of actually not necessarily trying to fix all the problems a long way, but actually your focus being on what it is that you need to achieve and sort of how you sort of problem-solve little steps to get around it actually does get you better results than actually just seeing the system as dysfunctional and I'm fixing it, I'm fixing it. And I think that's a huge part of our challenge in healthcare. I mean, we have huge problems. We're working in a system that that wobbles between complex and chaotic um, all the time. And, you know, we get lost sometimes because it's always the crisis du jour and, you know, you can't see past the crisis du jour. And I think, the, we become very reactive when we get past that. And that's that. I mean, it, it requires sort of strong leadership at all levels to sort of get past that. But by the same token, if we don't get past it, we are going to be condemned to just live in, you know, live in the moment that we seem to be stuck in sometimes. Why is it that you think that, that this coaching is, is, hasn't been done earlier in medicine i'm just it, it sounds like such a perfect profession for for coaches why has this, it sounds like it started recently really even though you've had coaches forever uh, what do you think the issue is here 
It, it's interesting. The um, you know, sort of, and here we get into the world of speculation. So we were talking about evidence right. early, and so <laughs> I'd have to say I have no evidence for this. Right. I mean, one one of the my colleagues in this world in the, in the, in the U.S., um, Dyke Drummond, who is a former family practitioner who now does nothing but physician coaching and, and exclusively in burnout. Um, he talks about physician head trash, and okay. and there are two types of head trash he talks about. You know, one is uh, the physician is the lone ranger. You know, where we do it all ourselves because we don't need help. Um, and the other is the physician as a superhero. You know, we do it, we do everything because we can do everything. Now, sort of, I think the first step in coaching um, is for someone to recognize that, you know, they could benefit from having assistance to work towards their goals. I think there's, the, I mean, I find it interesting when I look at the people I coach, um, I would say almost everybody I coach is under 50. Many are under 40. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the older people don't need coaching. Um, I just think that there has been a generational shift in medicine in terms of attitudes with younger physicians perhaps having a more enlightened viewpoint as to you know, kind of what their role is and what resources they need to do that role. So I... I mean, I'd like to say that the increase in interest in coaching we're seeing is as a result of, you know, the coaches getting better and, you know, the increased awareness. But I think that's only part of the story. I actually think there has been a change in the people who are, you know, in medicine and, you know, they actually have a slightly more sensible outlook than, than sort of crazy old people like me. And so that has been a, a drastic improvement. I think the culture also, I mean, you know, so there is the individual, but I mean, there's an interplay between the culture and that. I mean, you know, physicians need to be seen to be strong and independent and autonomous and all those things. And maybe seeking a coach wasn't part of that. But availability is an issue as well. I think, um, uh, I mean, generally coaching isn't about coaches teaching. I mean, what we try to do is bring out of people and you know, using inquiry, get them to think and look at things in different ways. And you know, but most of the content's coming from inside the person's head. Um, having people, but physicians still live within a community. Um, they are a lot of the time they're dealing with privileged information. I think compared to many other people, they are sensitive to issues of confidentiality. And I think there has been a reluctance to um, kind of discuss issues that, you know, involve personal health information, involve, you know, sort of the, the vulnerabilities that they're experiencing in their practice with people who are outside the tent. And I think the, the, the move in certainly the last couple of decades where we're seeing more and more physicians undertaking formal training and certification and coaching has been a big help with that so that, you know, people can talk to someone without feeling that is it okay? You know, I mean, is is you know, does this person live by the same rules that I live by? And now we have a good body of coaches where I think people can feel they can they can talk about their work, recognizing that the person on the other side of the table or the other side of the Zoom connection, because as most of our coaching these days is virtual, uh, understands that you know. 
that this can't go any further. That you know, I mean, that this is this is confidential information, and uh, you know, they don't actually have to kind of explain or necessarily be very very careful about what they're saying because the the confidentiality confidentiality of the coaching relationship is reinforced by the confidentiality of physician training and obligations under you know the, the physician regulatory world. And the, the the idea of coaching. So how much of it? Is it in terms of teaching people or helping people to be better leaders? I guess you're not really teaching. You're doing motiv- motivational interviewing in a way. You're, you're trying to find, help them find a solution. But how much of it is revolving about, about leadership or is most revolving around personal issues? What is it that you mostly concentrate on when you do this? I, th- I think, I mean, there is a reason that people come to coaching and then what happens inside it is what happens inside it. <laughs> Um, I mean, in my practice, about probably two-thirds of it is roughly people coming from a leadership position. Okay. Once you get in there, though, I mean, I, I mean, let's take, for example, of, you know, sort of sustain, you know, burnout, sustainability, that sort of thing. I mean, what's the point of teaching someone leadership skills if their practices are going to have them sort of being a candidate for an insane asylum within 12 months? So... I mean, you can't coach in the leadership space without paying attention to sustainability, thriving, you know, wellness, that sort of thing. Um, you know, if someone's looking at career change, I mean, which is sometimes happens or career focus, I mean, in talking about that, you can't talk about that without looking at goals, options, you know, the context of where they're going. So, I mean, once you get into that coaching space, it becomes pretty freeform as to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the outcomes change. I mean, some of the coaching, I mean, I do work in conflict and I do work in, in sometimes in professionalism. Now, when people are referred by, you know, either the CMPA lawyer or, um, you know, a health organization because of, you know, issues, concerns about the way they're interacting, behaving, Um. Coaching is appropriate if they're, they've come to the decision themselves that, you know what, this isn't working for me. I need to do something different. I mean, if, if they're sent just because someone's ticking a box, it doesn't work. But, I mean, I, I can think of three examples where that's been the door they've come in. The door they've come out has been leadership because okay. often these were people, you know, who were passionate, who were committed, who were dedicated to their patients, but their tactics sucked. <laughs> And so when they realized that and started you applying, I mean, one of the things about coaching physicians, you're always coaching smart people. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty selected population. I mean, you know, the IQs are pretty high there. So generally, once the insight happens, these are people who can go with it and run with it. So it's interesting because I mean, you do see people talking about being a wellness coach or a life coach or things like that. But I think once you're a coach and working with physicians, you, it's really, I mean, it basically needs a primary care approach. You've got to be a generalist. I mean, you know, I mean, because you're coaching a person, you're not coaching a leader. And I mean, often when, you know, it is about leadership, someone wants to come in and says, you know, they need to, you know, understand better how to work with organizations and things like that. The things we often end up talking about is, exploring how they actually experience what's happening around them i mean you know how that what the interplay is between what they actually see and hear versus what they think about it what their emotional response to it 
and what it triggers in them in terms of what they want. And when once you get down to that level, I mean, what's happening between the domain of personal life, wellness, leadership, career, and things like that all blurs together. How I'm curious, how long are these sessions usually? It's usually about an hour. About um, an hour, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, for, for specific issues, I mean, there are some coaches out there who specialize in really focusing it down and sort of, you know, trying to get as much value as you can out of 10 minutes and things like that. Right. And I mean, and sometimes, you know, you get those moments where one question doesn't. I mean, sort of, you know, you just ask that question and, you know, the person stops and thinks. I mean, it's actually kind of a neat coaching moment when, you know, you ask a question and the, what you get back at the other side is silence because then you know you've landed one, you know. It's, it's, Bozai, Bozai, right? Yeah. You got to the point. But, but I think, I, I mean, good coaching, um, I, I mean, the standard dictum is coaching does not occur in your comfort zone. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, good coaching does push you into looking at things in new ways and thinking about things that, you know, don't tend necessarily to come right to the front. And so it is work. Um, so, I mean, in, you know, I mean, one of the things about coaching sessions is, uh, I mean, that's one of the limiting factors on their length because generally if, if you've had a good coaching session, usually after an hour, you've had enough. <laughs> I mean, your brain is starting to sizzle a little bit. And, uh, I mean, we often do sort of homework and set goals, but I think the important thing about coaching is that a, a good coaching session ends with a commitment to some sort of action. And you right. know, that's really the difference between coaching and therapy. I mean, you know, therapy is wonderful for getting deep in understanding and insights and so forth. And, you know, certainly there are overlaps in techniques of active listening and powerful questions and achieving insight and developing trust and intimacy and all those things. But, you know, the output of a coaching session is what are you going to do? When are you going to do it? How will I know you've done it? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, very action-focused. And so coaching should lead to something happening. And, you know, and that's really the, the difference with, you know, between that and therapy. Um, and you know, coaching shouldn't directly go into the mental health space. I mean, you know, unavoidably it does. And, again, I think that's one of the advantages often having trained physicians doing it. And, and we're probably a bit more conscious of the boundaries. But there again, I mean, if, if if you're talking to someone and, you know, it comes up that they're waking up at two o'clock in the morning and thinking dark thoughts or, you know, they're having moments where they're clearly having panic attacks and so forth, the coaching conversation wouldn't be about managing those conditions. It's about, okay, you know, what does that suggest to you? So what steps are you going to take to get help for that? You know, how will I know you've done that? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's um, so, and, you know, and a lot of the value of coaching in, in um certainly in the wellness space, and, and I, I certainly don't contest that physicians need help often in the wellness space, is actually doing that. It's actually translating the, the physician's awareness of their health issues into what are you going to do about it? I mean, what are you going to do to take that step to make that better? Yeah, it's, it's you know, some, and especially in physicians, we tend to be in denial sometimes about what's happening to our health. Uh, we're superheroes, remember? You're superheroes, yeah. I, I like, well, you, you called it head trash. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Dyke, Drum, Dyke Drummond's term. I mean, he, uh, you know, he has a very good uh, website called The Happy MD, and um, he actually has a book called Stop Physician Burnout. So, so that, that that's fascinating. I, 
I, I think it's a really good service. I didn't know it existed, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that it's, it's picking up. Going back to by going back to leadership, I, we sort of alluded to this, but I looked at some research on physician leadership, and there was a big study by the Canadian Institute of Health Research in 2014. And I'll, I'll quote what their uh, sort of their summary was. Physician leadership and physician engagement are essential elements of high-performing healthcare systems, contributing to higher scores on many quality indicators. Likewise, physician participation in hospital governance can improve quality and safety. Mm-hmm. Again, evidence-based. Do you have any other, this, this is from 2014, but do you have any other studies that, that show how important physician leadership is for the, for the system? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit the other way. It's, it's very hard to find a study that doesn't show that it makes a positive contribution. And um, the, uh, I think the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, has, you know, has done a lot of work kind of around that. I mean, I, I think w- without my, my index in front of you, it's, it's difficult to quote sort of um, summary studies. There has been a fair bit of work in the UK around the engagement question. Um, and you know, and engagement is an interesting thing. It's things that crops up a lot in coaching, and it, it's probably. Um, it, I love the engagement question because it's one of those areas where there's really good neuroscience behind it. And um, you know, I mean, engagement is something that is actually a physiological function with us. And I think you know, losing that concept is where a lot of our disengagement comes from. And um, if you ever watch a TV show on primates. And uh, on, on, I mean, I watched one last year, I think it was, on baby animals. And uh, they were following five baby animals. And one of them was a temple macaque in Sri Lanka. And, you know, everything you need to know about engagement, you can learn from temple macaques. But, you know, basically, we are hardwired for a number of things. And uh, David Rock, who is a neuroscientist and uh, researcher, and has done a lot of work with this. And you know, he came up with something called the SCARF model, which is you know, in order for us to connect and engage with other humans, <clears throat> we need to you know, be certain of our status. You know, we need to have certainty as to what's happening around here. Um, you know, we, we need to have some control, autonomy or control of what's happening you know, in the processes around us. Uh, we need to have relatedness needs met you know, to actually be able to sort of um, be part of a social group. And we need to be treated fairly. Uh, and fairness is interesting because people talk about it as a value, but there's, there's actually, um, uh, I think it's Dr. DeWall, who is a Dutch primatologist, has great videos on YouTube of what happens with capuchin monkeys when you give one a cucumber for a reward and you give the other one a grape. Um, you know, the one who's getting the cucumber just goes nuts. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, we are hardwired for fairness with these things. and. You know, the thing is, because this is a physiological process, it's happening all the time. I mean, th- this is actually part of our um, approach avoid behavior or fight and flight response. It's actually um, mediated through the amygdala in the brain. And you know, the challenge we have is that, you know, if we want to engage with physicians, I mean, say, you know, you are a leader wanting to engage with physicians or you're an organization wanting to engage with physicians. Those physicians you're engaged with are making engagement decisions five times a second. I mean, the, the switch mechanism that you know, applies these filters to whether we engage or do not engage in a social environment is happening that fast. 
if you decide that you're going to ignore the physicians for six months and then a big issue comes up and you say, and I've heard this many times, we need to engage with the doctors on this. You're screwed. Um, I think one of the things I do in my leadership development workshops and one of the things I do, you know, happens a lot in coaching is that if you are a leader in any sense, and you know, and this doesn't mean whether you've got a title or not, um, even if you're just kind of the first amongst equals and you, know, you, you have this unofficial leadership role, which I think all physicians have at some point in their career, engagement is your bread and butter. Engagement is part of what you do working with it. And, and if you think about people you've known who actually were good at leading and did engage, I mean, forget the big jobs they did. Just think about how they behaved in the spaces in between. I mean, were they nurturing connections? Were they communicating and being clear on what was happening around people? Were they reassuring people about their importance? Were were they actually allowing people to have control over the sorts of things where they could afford to have a bit of space and risk potentially risk failure and so forth? Because those are the things happening on an everyday basis that control engagement. A lot of the time, people look at it as a political process and think that, you know, if they tick a few boxes and follow some steps, they can suddenly engage with a group. But it's, it's actually more fundamental than that. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's a good area where, um, you know, the, the engagement process is important. The value for that is huge. And I think, as I say, um, you know, we, we have it both ways. I think, you know, there, are, there is evidence out there of what happens when you have disengaged populations and the impact of that on quality and the evidence for engagement but as i say engagement is everyday work it's not something that is stage one of a project um you know so i mean if you're a leader forget the project and you know i mean i mean i do workshop exercises where you know i take people through an exercise in supporting them in developing a way of engaging with the group and then usually they've the example they brought involved bringing, you know, that there was something that had to be done. And then after they've done the exercise of engagement, I kind of say, so in all those discussions, did you actually mention the topic that brought it in? And there's the light bulb goes on. No, we didn't. Because actually engagement is separate. It's not an issue-specific process. Yeah, there, there's a chapter in the book, and I think that that talks about this model. And it's also yeah. relating to meetings, medical meetings, which yeah. was really interesting because... I think you had four different, you had sort of divided the people, the engagement levels in different ways. And I, yeah. I should have written down, but there was like four different categories of people. Well, I, I mean, Dave, I mean, kind of the person who really um, was the, was foundational in this was right. David Rock. And he based his model on uh, research looking at activity of dopaminergic neurons in the brain. Right, right. I mean, you know, as a general rule, something that ups your dopamine is more likely to make you engage and something that drops it is going to make you disengage. Um, actually, a Toronto-based coach, Michael Bungay-Stania, who um, has a website and operation called Box of Crayons, and he actually wrote a book called The Coaching Method, which is aimed not at coaches but at people who want to use coach-like approaches in leadership. He, he, he simply knocked this down to four variables called terror, and which was tribe, which is, you know, basically find a way of making someone in-group. I mean, establishing some, recognizing someone as part of our group is very important. I mean, if someone is in your group and they cross one of your lines, you are likely to ascribe that to circumstance. 
you know, they're having a bad day. You know, I mean, it's they're busy. They're not feeling well, blah, blah, blah. If someone does exactly the same thing and they're not part of your group, and, you know, we see this on many scales, they are evil people, you know. They have character defects. They are Darth Vader. <laughs> same offence, but just where there isn't the group connection, so it's very important. Um, the, e, the E in the Terra model is expectations. It's just be clear on your role, their role, what, what's happening here. Uh, R is rank. You know, do what you can to reassure people about status, whether important or not. You know, I mean, sort of what's going on there. And A is, again, autonomy. I mean, autonomy is critical. And it's interesting, our brains, our brains aren't necessarily worried about us being in control of everything. We just want to have some control. I mean, I, I mean, I use the example in the book. I was a pediatrician, and you know, sometimes I had to do painful or scary procedures to children. Now, there wasn't a choice about doing those procedures, but anyone who's you know had a lot of experience in that game knows the power of if you've got to put an IV into a child, actually giving them control over who's holding them hand, giving them control over the stuffy on the bed, giving them control over the color of the band-aid goes a lot smoother. I mean, our brains like having some control. Doesn't don't necessarily distinguish what the control is. And again, going back to expectations, I mean, being clear on what is available for being under control, what's an asteroid? I mean, this is, again, is where a lot of physician organization conflicts break down. Lack of clarity over, you know, what, what is a choice here and what isn't? And, um, you know, I, I mean, how often have you seen the dispute where an organization says, we, we consulted the physicians and the physicians say, no, you didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. But in fact, when you go, when you dig back into that, um, the organization, the, the word consult was used loosely. Um, there's a great organization out there called the International Association for Public Participation. And they have a framework for public um, engagements, which works really well with doctors and individuals even, which is there are five levels. Inform, there's an asteroid coming. Just letting you know, not really, don't really care what you think about it. Uh, consult, there's an asteroid coming. Like to know what you think about it. No guarantee I'll do anything with that information, but you know, I'm willing to receive it and take it under advisement. There's involve. There's an asteroid coming. Interested to know what you think about it. Willing to involve you in um, sort of looking at how we're going to approach this, but you know, I'm going to make the final decision. There's collaborate. There's an asteroid coming, willing to you know get your opinion, involve you in developing the options. And you may have some role in the final decision. And there's Empower. There's an asteroid coming. Over to you. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is that you know, physicians um, spend most of their lives, actually, in collaborate or Empower. I mean, when you're dealing with patients, you're usually working in a situation where you're working with the patient to develop a solution. Or, I mean, particularly in emergency care, intensive care, and things like that, um, the patient may have transferred their agency to you because they're not in a position to respond. If that's where you live and someone comes with you or something, you're going to kind of assume, okay, well, this is a collaborating power situation. And um, if it's not explicitly stated, no, this is an informed situation. You know, the Ministry of Health is telling us to do this. There is no discussion. I mean, physicians being used to being collaborating power kind of assume that their opinion is being sought and they have some say in the decision. 
and it, I mean, everybody's sort of innocent in this, but right. everybody's working from a different experience, and and you end up with you know World War Three, um, and you know, and I, I mean, I, I you know, when I work with organizations, I mean, that it, it's it's surprising how often you know when I've heard that word consult, I've had to say, just can you tell me what you mean by that? So is that really consulting, or is that really informal? <laughs> And so, I mean, you know, it's interesting how we get ourselves into trouble. But, I mean, you know, I think the reason, I mean, in the book, you'll find that, you know, whilst the, the section on that's in the early chapters, it keeps getting referred back to, is my lived experience has been that misunderstandings around that, that process of expectations and engagement has caused so much unnecessary grief. Mm-hmm. Um, amongst people, at the end of the day, all of whom, are of good intent and goodwill. But, I mean, once it goes off the rails and you're not engaged, then, then the whole thing of, well, they're outside my group, therefore they're Darth Vader, and, you know, it all escalates. Yeah, it's it's about, you know, having a different definition of what consulting means as well. And yeah. it's you see that all the time between patients and doctors and doctors and doctors. Yeah. Your expectations are very different from another's. I yeah. have to say, I, I think... Because you mentioned conflict, I, I think my favorite chapter and the one that that I found was the most empowering to me was the chapter on conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. In fact, I used being a proud dad here. I used some of those tips to deal with the situation with my son, and it worked. So thank you, Malcolm. <laughs> it worked. But what was fascinating is is that, and I'm paraphrasing. Obviously, correct me if I misunderstood. But what you're saying is. When there's a conflict, it's not necessarily important to figure out exactly what happened because everybody has a very fluid memory, mm-hmm. right? You said that, and that's evidence-based. But but what's going to happen now and next, right? Mm-hmm. How do we solve this and not assign blame? I think mm-hmm. that was still was very powerful. And I, and I think blame is something that happens still a lot in medicine, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen as much in other professions, to be frank with you. Mm-hmm. Right? And why, why do you think that is? Why do you think the blame game is still so powerful in medicine, such a powerful, like, teaching tool and leadership tool? And Well, I, I, I think, actually, I mean, it's important you raise it in the, the teaching issue. I think the, um, I mean, one of, one of the problems with teaching is, is twofold. I mean, one is, um, you know, if you have poor teaching technique, you don't necessarily convey the information. Um, but what you do convey is your poor teaching technique. And right. um you know, I think there's a lot of evidence that, you know, I mean, how, how we behave to others is what's modeled to us. But the interesting thing, I, I think, with the, the blame issue, and it certainly does exist. Um, I mean, it was only, what, last couple of weeks we've seen that case in the U.S. of a, a nurse who has been right. essentially, you know, is charged and, and or I think, convicted of murder for, right. for a medication error. And, you know, I mean, sort of which is, oh, how, you know, how are we still doing this in this day and age? So I, I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, the issue of, of kind of the, the modeling for physicians, you know, the, the lone ranger, the superhero. I mean, um, in that situation, is it's very hard to say, you know what, I screwed up. So what made me screw up? You know, what were the factors in play? You know, what in me made me screw up? What in the environment around me set me up to do it? Which is, of course, you know, all of what, you know, the, the quality improvement, you know, quality and safety world is about. I mean, you know, what were the system factors? What were the human factors? And, you know, and of course, the, you know, the more research we do into this area, the more we find that, you know, that 
there are actually often relatively simple and straightforward ways to to kind of eliminate that. But as soon as you start blaming, um, I mean, you reinforce the tendency. I mean, none of us ever know the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what we believe and what we experience, you know, is a neurochemical event happening between our ears. And all of us have a different neurochemical event, which is why when you're trying to revol- resolve conflict, you know, you know, the just the facts approach doesn't work because we all have different facts. And, you know, sort of trying to take the approach of using the story to understand kind of how people feel about what's happening here and what's important to them is valuable. Using the story to try and find the truth, um, and I think most people working in conflict will tell you this, is a complete waste of time. You know, and sort of, um, I mean, how many conflicts historically in the world can you look at which are based on, you know, historical facts and you have groups that are killing each other based on, you know, kind of different interpretations of facts and they're never going to change. So, I mean, the, the way we look at conflict is it, it's an experience. I mean, it's something we're experiencing. And so, you know, what, what do the parties need to do to kind of move past this experience in a constructive way? You know, and I think successful conflict resolution is based on the assumption that, you know, okay, this is the experience people have had. So, you know, what's the outcome? Can we agree on an outcome we both want? Exactly. Um, right. And, you know, trying to sort of get that conversation away from the past. And, and generally when, you know, we, we're working in this space and using a conflict coaching approach, I mean, um, sometimes it goes, well, it doesn't always. I mean, nothing's perfect. And generally when it fails, um, it's because one or more parties really can't let go of, of that and, and change the perspective forward. And there's not a lot you can do with that. I mean, you, you just kind of have to sit and wait and, and you know, and hope that the time will change. But but the important thing, the other important thing about conflict is that um, it doesn't necessarily take two people, um, you know, in the sense that conflict is something you experience inside yourself and you could be in conflict with someone and they have absolutely no idea that they have pushed the right buttons to start that process in you. And, you know, that is going on for some time and it can go on for years before that becomes manifest outwards. And and one of the really important things for leaders to recognize is generally when they suddenly see two people or more on their team at each other's throats, that's not where it started. (laughs) Right. Right. And so having some understanding of, of what kind of what the triggers are and what the feeling are, you know, is helpful in terms of giving you some idea of what the issues you know, really are about. Because, I mean, generally when by the time conflict is actually manifest in open behaviour, um, there's been a whole lot of stuff going on. There's been a really complicated belief system about the other parties and, and developed. And often it has very little to do with the actual facts of an incident, you know, that led to people sort of yelling at each other in a meeting or something like that. And so... You're trying to do that. I mean, I mean, uh, the, the, there's a, a Toronto-based um, conflict consultant, Leanne Davy, and she, I mean, she just has a great saying. She says, "Facts don't fix fights," and um, uh, you know, don't I think f- that's very true. I, I agree. Having dealt with some conflict, they don't <laughs> fix fights. They're, they're useful sometimes, but they they don't give you the solution. And again, I think to me, that's. I mean, the book is excellent. Um, I, I would suggest anybody who's interested in leadership read it but that chapter to me was was it sort of gave me a paradigm shift in how i approach things so uh, thank you again thank for you. writing it yeah um, i think we 
a couple more things before we end. Uh, so in terms of resources for, for physician leaders, obviously there's your book, mm-hmm. um, Coaching is a great yep. resource, and I'll send it out to, to our listeners. You mentioned the CMA, the Physician Leadership Institute, which I did look, look up, and they offer free courses. Is there anything mm-hmm. else that you would suggest people seek to begin um, their journey? I, I think there's a, a number of options. I mean, at the simplest level, um, mentorship is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at somebody you think does a good job, you know, someone that you like being led by, and, you know, become engaged and involved with them. I mean, generally people who are good leaders often make good mentors. Um, I mean, the, you know, the skills that I think make people effective leaders. Um, I mean, that there was some research done at the University of Colorado years ago, and it was actually published in a book called Good, good to Great. But they looked at companies, um, the Fortune 500 companies that wildly outperformed comparable companies um, in the Fortune 500, and they looked at their leadership. And, you know, what they found was, um, you know, those companies were most likely to be led by people who were, you know, kind of think Donald Trump and think the exact opposite. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were very goal-focused. They were humble. You know, they were very focused on getting the right people on the right seats on the bus. You know, they were open to ideas. They welcomed controversy. I mean, you know, it was kind of all those things. So, I mean, finding people, you know, do that is still the most powerful influence. I mean, you know, training programs are great, but, I mean, we all live the experience of, you know, the boss has gone away to a course and comes back with all the new acronyms. <laughs> um, so, actually, learning from people around you is good. I think reading around, um, I mean, it, it's, you know, one of the biggest challenges is if physicians and, and I think medical leadership or healthcare leadership is we started trying to reinvent the wheel all the time. I mean, and I think being serious people, we get a little put off by some of the, the titles in the leadership space because, I mean, you know, I mean, they t- you know, outside of medicine, they have a clever marketers. And so, I mean, like I said, you know, book good to great. I'd say most physicians, if you told them that was the title of a book, they, eh, you know, it sounds a bit trendy, you know. I mean, in fact, the book was written by a PhD business professor, um, and it involves, you know, really quite serious uh, mixed methods and statistical research into corporate performance. Uh, I mean, it's, it's rock hard social science. Um, I mean, if, if someone gave you a book called First, First Break All the Rules, um, would you recognize that that is a book based on a massive meta-analysis of data on corporate performance gathered by the Gallup Corporation, <laughs> <laughs> which actually led to groundbreaking insights into what managers who are successful and employees of successful companies really believe in what's important to them. And, and that actually led to the Gallup 12-step program, which now actually informs physician engagement surveys in Canada. Okay. Um, but it's, um, so, I mean, I think actually taking the time to sort of stop in your local bookshop and look at some of the leadership books out there, um, because there is a lot of wisdom outside of medicine and, you know, even just kind of, I mean, you know, looking at Amazon and seeing what the top ranked ones are and so forth. And many of them are very well written and they're very interesting reads. And so I think there is that option as well. Um, often there are local leadership groups. And, and one of the things we're trying, I mean, I, I mean, one of the things we don't do well in Canada, which we could do a lot more of, 
is actually harness the collective wisdom of physician leaders um, with a little bit of professional help. I and mean, this, this is one of the things we're trying, I think, as an association to, to get health organizations to think a little bit more about is actually group coaching, where, I mean, um, I, mean I, I live in a health authority in BC that has 22 institutions with chiefs of staff. It would be great to have kind of a couple of chief of staff groups where they meet with, you know, perhaps someone with a bit of skill facilitating once a month to talk about what they need to talk about. I mean, you know, no minutes kept off the record. Um, you know, how would you approach this? And and actually that collective wisdom of don't lead alone. I mean, you know, actually stand up and say, you know, I mean, just think like you would if you were a first year medical student. I mean. I'm a leader. I'm new at this. I need somebody to show me the way. I mean, so and what do we do in medicine? We find someone more experienced than us to work with. And if we're good, we find several people and, you know, we compare the different approaches and viewpoints. It's funny how often, you know, we do that as physicians. We don't do it as physician leaders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, and I, you know, I mean, I don't want to put myself out of a job, but that's probably more powerful than coaching. <laughs> um but so I think there's, you know, it's actually taking that intellectual curiosity. And, you know, and I think if, if, if people who are in leadership roles, even if they're informal ones, and I, and I think before the podcast, we were talking about the fact that um, um, a lot of the physician sort of leadership roles that are going to develop around the primary care environment are going to be much, much more open and formal. And the, uh, so, so, I mean, with that, the, the, the need to actually step in in the moment and lead. Um, and, you know, leadership in, in the sense of actually being someone who is looked to to guide others in a process or in a decision or something like that. I mean, that is something all physicians are going to experience. I think as we move away from the, you know, the lonely doc doing their work as the model for healthcare, and I think we are now committed to move away from that. Um, the more we move into team-based care, um, particularly when, as certainly as here in BC, the primary you know the primary care home, the, the urgent primary care centres are envisioned, physicians will find themselves playing um, different roles on different teams. I mean, you know, it's I don't think they they will necessarily be kind of sitting in one place in one room with the same team all the time. I think what they're going to find is that they will be playing things in different roles. Some they'll be leading, some they'll be following, some they'll be doing both at different times. And, and I think actually um, just kind of recognizing that that needs a different set of skills that you may not have been trained for. And so you're a smart person, you're, you're literate, you know how to look things up, you know how to find resources, use those skills to actually address that. Yeah, excellent. And as I was saying before the podcast, things are also changing in Quebec, how it's organized. So uh, I think a lot of our colleagues and us will be pushed into these leadership positions and a lot of us not ready, but hopefully we will be with, uh, with all the resources that we have. Listen, uh, Dr. Ogborn, I really appreciate your time. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, again, your book is excellent. It, it's one of those books I'm repeating where there's a paradigm shift where you, you mm-hmm. see things differently. And those are the books that are important in, in people's lives. So thank you for taking them to write it. And thank you for publishing and thank you for talking to us. And um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.